Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a new documentary podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were, and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is Episode 3, Color Cycling. In 1982, the movie studio Lucasfilm acclaimed the world over for blockbuster films like Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark decided to branch out into games. Studio founder George Lucas saw this as an opportunity to push further at the cutting edge of entertainment using some of the same computer technology that had made Star Wars such an incredible experience. Lucasfilm games would have freedom to experiment, its only directive being to innovate to explore the outer reaches of interactive entertainment. This meant hiring the best and smartest people around, people like Peter Langston, a computer scientist who had a decade earlier written the first version of an influential Plato's strategy game called Empire, which if you've listened to episode two, you may remember was the game that took the mantle from flight combat simulator Air Fight as the most popular computer game on the Plato system. Peter Langston was put in charge of the new division, which worked alongside Lucasfilm's computer technology group. That was one of the first times where people who were real computer scientists were applying their knowledge to doing games. They weren't, you know, hackers so much as computer scientists. That's Gary Winnick. He was employee number six at Lucasfilm Games. He'd previously been working in Atari's computer division, following an earlier stint working in an art store. Through some method of recruiting, I don't even really remember what it was, um, I was told that Atari was looking for, they, you know, they had originally started out using computer programmers to kind of do the art on the simple graphics of things, and they sort of got the brilliant idea that they wanted to have right, real artists learn how to work in pixels. And I remember um, doing some auditions, and what I did was I actually got graph paper grid paper and I was meticulously with felt pens drew sprites on graph paper as part of my portfolio to then present to Atari and I presented both to Atari and a company called iMagic in the same week and they both offered me jobs in the same week and because Atari was actually the manufacturer of the hardware I decided to take the job with Atari so I started as an one of the first I'm going to say at that time artists was an artist that was brought in um, with art background. I had worked kind of in the comic book industry before that. Gary was put to work doing the art for Atari 800 conversions of arcade games. But shortly after he arrived, things started to get really weird. So basically, they were bringing in all these high-level executives that weren't really that familiar with the computer industry, so much as, I'm going to say, marketing and, and sort of business in general. And at the time, I think it was, you know, a mistake because they didn't really understand what we were doing. They were just sort of looking at numbers on pieces of paper, I think. I think that when I first started and, and when other people had been there, Atari was just so successful, it was successful in spite of itself. It could do no wrong because, it, you know, everything they did just sold tons of, of units. When Gary heard from a friend that Lucasfilm was starting up a games division and they needed an artist... He jumped at the chance. They were already one of the coolest game studios in the business just by merit of their mandate and their place in the famed Skywalker Ranch. With Lucasfilm, he helped make various cutting-edge action and adventure games like Ball Blazer, The Eidolon, and Rescue on Fractalus, which used a fractal geometry engine by Lauren Carpenter, who 
voudrais de co-found Pixar Animation Studios. By the end of the decade, Lucasfilm Games had established itself not only as a technology leader, but also as graphic adventure specialists. They had a whole series of games built on what they called the Scum Engine, short for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. Maniac Mansion being the game that programmer and designer Ron Gilbert had originally created the engine for. Gary had been the co-creator of Maniac Mansion, but as art director at the studio, he didn't have time to do all the art for every game they released. He soon started to bring in talented local artists and animators. As contractors, like fellow comic book artist Steve Purcell, who, by the way, now works at Pixar, in case you were wondering at the caliber of talent on offer to him, and freelance illustrator Ken Macklin. Come 1988, when they were working on DOS, Amiga, and Atari ST versions of another scum adventure game, Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, Gary needed another new artist. You know, I, I, I brought on a few of my friends, but I had um, had an opportunity at that point now because having been at Lucasfilm, almost anybody would talk to me, you know. Um, and so I went to, I believe it was a, it was in the Bay Area. I think it was the Red Lion Inn in San Jose. And I can't remember if it was a Baycon or a Westcon or something like that. But it was some science fiction convention. And everybody was talking about this guy who drew in colored pencils. And, you know, a few friends of mine, you know, drug me around to the art show. And I looked at the stuff and it was amazing. And I was introduced to the guy and it turned out to be Mark Ferrari. Mark Ferrari was a talented young illustrator, just beginning to step into the professional art scene. He remembers that whereas today's sci-fi and fantasy conventions are all about the fans, in the late 1980s, you could see all the most prominent illustrators, publishers, and art directors at conventions. Conventions weren't about fans geeking out, in other words. They were opportunities to network and meet people and do business. A friend suggested that he should put some of his artwork at Baycon. And I went expecting some sort of shopping mall art show. I mean, I really just thought this was going to be kind of a, a local arts and crafts fair and I thought, why not? So I put him in there, and when I got there, of course, half of the most famous science fiction fantasy illustrators in the country was there, and I felt like a fool. But uh, I think partly because I was working in colored pencil, which was an extremely unusual medium to be using in those days, and I was working with it in a way that made it not look like pencil, I attracted a lot of attention. And I ended up winning Best of Show in the professional category, which was extremely unexpected in all sorts of ways. And that, I think, is how I came to Gary Winnick's attention that weekend. And the very first thing I told him when he talked to me about whether I might be interested in working for Lucasfilm Games was that, of course, I was interested in working for Lucasfilm, but that I had never touched a computer, knew nothing about them, and was a dyed-in-the-wool technophobe. So... I'm not sure, you know, I told him I'm not sure that I'm the guy you're looking for. And his response was that he had found it on many occasions much easier to find a good artist and teach him to use a computer than to find a good computer technician and teach him to be an artist. So they hired me as somebody who not only didn't know anything about computers, but was rather afraid of them. And just as he predicted, overcame that fear very quickly. 
The timing was perfect. Lucasfilm had just recently embraced an art tool called Deluxe Paint, or D-Paint for short, which was a commercial program published by Electronic Arts. Before this, all of their tools were made in-house, and most artwork had to be crunched down into custom character sets for the Commodore 64. Gary Winnick says they didn't even have a magnify function. I used to have a ma- one of those big magnifying lamps. I used to swing down in front of my TV and look at stuff and then swing out of the way in order to use it to magnify. But when they moved from Commodore 64 to PC as their base development platform, they had all this sudden freedom. Character sets didn't matter because now they were working with bitmapped graphics. So a bitmap is literally a map of bits. It defines the location and color of pixels in a digital image. So in essence, now they could draw something in an art program and it would look exactly the same when they put it into a game. There were some caveats, however, as Mark soon learned once he'd gotten to grips with the basics of D-Paint. The thing about Deluxe Paint was that unlike tools today, God help us Photoshop or Illustrator or much less 3D rendering programs, it's a very simple tool. You know, there was one interface. It had a limited number of function buttons on it and a few pull-down menus. And you didn't really need to learn very much to start drawing pictures. This was further simplified by the fact that when I first started doing this, there were a whole lot of things you could do with the tool in terms of drawing a picture that you were not allowed to do in game art because they produced problems with the code side of things. So for instance, there were only 16 horrible colors. I mean, really horrible colors. And so one of the first things I tried to do was just dither these horrible colors into more useful colors. And I got much better looking results right away, but I hadn't been doing it for more than an hour or two when Ron Gilbert and his programmers came running in, in a dither, so to speak, to tell me to stop that, stop that right away, because dither did not compress and I couldn't do this. So, you know, my first game, I only had 16 colors to manage and I had to use them in fields of solid color. Uh, So there were a whole bunch of buttons in Deluxe Paint that there was no point in even learning about because the things they did wouldn't have been allowed in game art at that time. So uh, it was a pretty simple set of knowledge and skills to pick up. Uh, If I did find it challenging, it was actually challenging because pretty quickly I became aware that there were lots of ways to make a much better looking picture, except that we weren't allowed to. And uh, at that point... I began in a very passive-aggressive way to start campaigning for, uh, you know, why can't we, why can't we figure out how to make use of more of what this art tool can do in our games? And eventually, pretty soon, Dither did compress. I'm just going to quickly pause the story here for a moment. To ask that if you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing it on social media, reviewing it on iTunes, and signing up for a monthly pledge on Patreon. I'll be posting ad-free episodes and various bonus stuff, like uh, more of the sound bites that I released last week, and uh, extended interviews with people who I talked to for the main documentaries. Head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon for more information. I'll remind you again later. For now, on with the show. Dither was nothing new to computer graphics. 
or even to games. But it was rare outside of black and white Mac games, which were well ahead of the graphics curve thanks largely to the talents of artists like Mark Stephen Pierce and Robin Miller, whose one-bit pixel work is still stunning to look at today. But on DOS, Dither didn't become common until Mark Ferrari forced the programmer's hands. Uh, the way I got Lucasfilm to use Dither in their backgrounds was at the end of Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, which was my first game with them, which I did all my backgrounds in solid EGA colors. Directed, but, you know, at home, I mean, because I was still getting used to the D-Paint tool at home, I was just drawing pictures in D-Paint to get more familiar with the tool. And, um, you know, I've been drawing these really pretty pictures that I couldn't do in the games. And as we finished up Zack McCracken, I think it was the last day of the project, actually, I had one of these pictures. It was, a, it was a twilight scene with layers of rolling hills and live oak trees sort of receding into the distance and a moon rising in the twilight sunset in the background and all this stuff. And it was all done with dither. It was done with EGA, those 16 horrible EGA colors, but they were dithered. So you just got an entirely different degree of depth and of depth of field and of color subtlety. And it was a really pretty picture. And so when I went to lunch that day, I just left this picture up on my screen. I worked in the office of the art director, which helped because anything I did, he saw right away. That was Gary Winnick. So when I went to lunch, I just left that picture up on the screen. I didn't say anything. I just left there for like an hour and a half. And when I came back, Steve Arnold, who was the head of the division at the time, and Ron Gilbert were having a... Um, dynamic conversation, I guess that's a diplomatic way to put it, about why Dither didn't uh, compress and why it couldn't compress. And lo and behold, two months later, it did compress. Um, and then all of Lucasfilm games started having Dither backgrounds. And to get a really good look at what Mark was able to do in those early days with Dither and a tiny palette of ugly contrasting colors, check out the game Loom. It's L-O-O-M. It's a point-and-click adventure game where you interact with the world by playing a magical musical instrument. It's pretty cool. Mark did the background illustrations, and they are amazing. Especially on the Amiga and the DOS VGA versions. Now, Dither wasn't the end of Mark Ferrari's graphical innovations. He kept working with D-Paint, kept learning and experimenting with and mastering all of its capabilities. And he was lucky, because it would remain the industry standard tool for background art through to the mid-1990s, which is exceedingly rare. And not just in games, but across all digital art and entertainment. These days, tools are upgraded or replaced by new software altogether so rapidly that for most of us, there is not time to do anything other than to learn to become proficient in that before you have to abandon everything you've learned and start learning something new. So it's a whole lot harder to master a digital art tool these days than it used to be because there just isn't time to become that familiar with it to the point where you can start bending it around in ways it wasn't even meant to be used. That, that, that just, there isn't time for that anymore. I know that there are a few savants among us whose whole lives must be software who manage to really master uh, some of these tools and do amazing things with them. But 
for the general run-of-the-mill guy like me. The days of even having time and space to master a digital art tool seemed to be pretty much gone. His next innovation was in showing the power of a technique called color cycling. It's a cool trick that creates the illusion of animation in much the same way that, say, lights on a theater marquee do. So basically, by having individual lights or pixels turn on and off or change color in a particular sequence, you can make it look like there's some kind of movement going on. This way, they could save tremendous amounts of space and processing power. Because instead of storing extra animations, they just needed some extra numbers stored in the image file to tell it which pixels should change to which colors at certain intervals. Color cycling was as a result of experimentation. The deluxe paint came with a little collection of sample effects you could do with color cycling, and most of them were pretty remedial. Nobody really used color cycling very much because it was kind of a cheap trick that seemed good for only a very limited set of cheap effects. And so people kind of ignored it. But I found some of the, their little samples intriguing. And as, uh, as I began using it, I began to discover other things. The same way that I went for dither when nobody was using dither. And I began to, I began getting these sort of simple, you know, horizontal bands of moving color, which everybody knew about and thought were so boring and they were right. And wishing that I, you know, I wishing that I could somehow put one of those bands over another one transparently, but there wasn't any, there certainly wasn't any moving transparency. There wasn't any real transparency at all in deluxe paint too in those days. There weren't layers. Every painting was a single layer of art, and that's all you got in those days. So I tried making a checkerboard dither and just filling, you know, half the pixels with one of my bands of horizontal moving color and then flipping that thing into a different orientation and stamping it down over all the pixels in between. And what I got was a kind of fake transparency of this moving gradient reoriented over itself and with that i began to realize that there were ways of making water effects that nobody had made before and once i started making the water effects i started trying to figure out how to do reflections and realized that if you put a little pin line on the edge of the reflected image and build that pin line with a gradient that was half the color on one side of that line and half the color on the other side of that line it would make the line itself seem to warble back and forth and you know then then there was the problem of color cycling flashing. You did a flame in a bunch of different gradients that were all the same length and moving at the same speed. The whole effect would kind of flash, light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, because the gradient, you know, the colors that you were seeing in the gradient kept changing all at the same time. So I began trying to figure out how to fix that and realized that if I made that flame out of several gradients that were moving at different speeds, then they wouldn't line up that way and the flashing disappeared and you got a much more modulated uh, syncopated kind of effect. And so I just began solving problems. I began taking the things that didn't look good in color cycling and figuring out how to make them look better. And eventually I ended up with a really large bunch of techniques. At one point, Bondi Toys flew me to Japan and paid me $800 a day just to teach half a dozen of their artists how to do what I did with color cycling. That was a marvelous trip. You can see Mark's full mastery of color cycling techniques in what he considers his magnum opus. 
It's an obscure interactive calendar program called Seize the Day. And it had incredible living world illustrations for each month. So without any actual animation, these illustrations seemed wholly alive. Water sprayed up from the surface at the bottom of a waterfall. Grass and trees rustled in the wind, clouds arced across the sky, the sun rose and fell, the forests saw both rain and sunlight and snow, depending on the day. And if you looked closely, you could even notice that the colours cycled at different speeds in different places. Mark says he could do this by increasing or decreasing the number of colours in a gradient. If you have more colours to cycle through, or if you have fewer pixels tied to a particular gradient, it makes movement appear slower, because it takes longer to cycle through all the colours. It was breathtaking to watch, and what made it all the more remarkable was that he discovered the tricks that he used to change weather and time of day, the the tricks that completed the illusion of a living world within your screen, entirely by accident, or because of a bug in the software. In Deluxe Paint, if you were working on a picture on screen and you wanted to load a different file, you would go up to the menu and, you know, click on Open, and then you'd get this drop-down inventory of the other files. And as you click through the other files in the menu, looking for the file you were looking for, Deluxe Paint would substitute the palette you were working with for the palettes in these other files you were clicking on in the menu. So... I saw the the picture I was working on on screen just go through all of these other bizarre, incorrect palettes. And I did that, you know, I saw that every time I went to load a new file while I had a file open on screen. And, you know, obviously it was a bug. It was a bug that nobody cared about, so nobody had done anything about. But one day I was clicking through other files in the open menu and the daytime scene that I was working on, sort of a a valley in the mountains with a blue blue cloudy sky behind it and a lake in the middle of it. All of a sudden, that valley just accidentally became a twilight scene with, you know, darkened purpley mountains and the sky because I'd used the same gradients in the sky and the lake because one was reflecting the other. The sky, I mean, it just, it just changed the time of day. And I looked at that and thought, well, holy shit. You know, if if I just traded a palette out, this becomes a different picture. And if if it weren't for this, you know, open file menu in Deluxe Paint, I I don't think I would ever have thought of that. But it happened accidentally one day in a way that made sense. And then I began experimenting with that and seized the day was the result, actually. Mark continued refining his skills and hopping around from project to project, applying his illustration talents. Many projects never came out, but you can see his work in the background art for space combat game Star Wars X-Wing, in adventure game Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, platformer Warlock, and the menus for Acclaim's Magic the Gathering Battle Mage, among others. And years later, also in The Legend of Spyro the Eternal Knight for Game Boy Advance, which is maybe the most beautiful handheld game of all time. Seriously, go look at some screenshots of it. 
But sadly, Mark was an unfortunate casualty of a transformation that swept the industry in the mid-1990s. 3D CAD rendered uh, art came in and everything I was famous for doing became instantly irrelevant overnight, the middle of 1996. I went from being highly in demand because of all of these color cycling and palette shifting techniques I developed to being utterly irrelevant and had virtually no work at all for five years. It was um, challenging. So, yeah, it's been real feast and famine. It's been odd and interesting and largely accidental. I'm not somebody who started out with a plan and executed it. I'm somebody who just kept hunting through whatever I was faced with in an industry that I didn't really understand very well when I got into it and probably don't really understand very well to this day. Getting work as an artist turned from difficult to nearly impossible for Mark in the year 2000. In 2000, I rode my mountain bike around a sharp hairpin turn into the grill of an oncoming truck, and we totaled each other. And in the six-month recovery period, uh, well, actually the year following that accident, it slowly became clear that um, my head and my hands were not communicating the way they had. He had to give up on his coloured pencil art. And for a while, he switched his focus entirely to writing. His first novel, published several years later, would go on to sell more than 27,000 copies. But the art bug hit him again a few years after his accident. And by the late 2000s, he found that tablet technology had finally reached a point where he could hand draw right onto the screen. And with the digital assists built into the software, he could get commercial grade results. In November 2014, after around 15 years working on different things, Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick got together again with a plan to make a spiritual successor to Maniac Mansion in the same style and at a similar graphical fidelity to their 1980s Lucasfilm adventure games. They raised money on Kickstarter to fund development. Mark says he became a backer right away. And when I became a backer, they realized that I was still alive, which apparently they hadn't known, and uh, asked me to do backgrounds for all of this. They ended up raising over $600,000 from the campaign. And as development proceeded, Thimbleweed Park evolved into something more ambitious, let's say, but still in keeping pretty much to the spirit of the original idea. It was still very much an old-school adventure game made modern. Definitely we were going for that same sensibility that we had with those older adventure games, but we added a number of kind of, you know, modern visual features. There's, you know, shading and lighting, there's um, parallaxing and, you know, a, a lot of, you know, just, you know, layers, I'll say a dozen layers of parallax and things that you couldn't have had in the old days. But it's, but it feels like those games. What Mark Ferrari actually said is it feels like it's like going to the Renaissance Fair instead of being in the Renaissance. You can now play Thimbleweed Park on all the major platforms. PC, Mac and Xbox versions came out back in March, while it also released for PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch and iOS recently, and it'll be on Android shortly too. I haven't had time to play much of it, but it is from what I hear, an excellent modernization of what is very much an old concept. 
Mark still credits his early successes and all of his innovations as an artist to naivety. He achieved what he did because nobody told him it was impossible. And he thinks there's a lesson in that. It was all about being naive enough not to understand that there, that I shouldn't do that to start with. And I think when you're an innovator, part of that, as anybody would know immediately, is, is being able to think outside the box. But if you are too familiar with the box and too comfortable there, that's a very hard thing to do. It is a lot easier for people who know nothing about the box to think outside the box. In fact, it's almost impossible for someone who knows nothing about the box not to think outside the box. So if what you're looking for is innovation, it's probably a really good idea to look for people who don't know much about the venue or the environment in which you are wanting to innovate and see what wacky things they come up with. You can see more of Mark Ferrari's phenomenal artwork at his website, markferrari.com. He has this really cool gallery of coloured pencil drawings and uh, some of his 8-bit video game artwork, including for some games that never came out. And there's a link to an HTML simulation of his Seize the Day colour and palette cycling animation tricks. You can also see more of Gary Winnick's work at garyart.net. I am ready, Mother. Let's go. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. This week's episode features music by Lee Rosevere, Evan Schaefer, Kai Engel, and myself, plus this bit from the game Loom that you're hearing right now in the background. If you enjoyed the show, please tell other people about it. It'll also be a huge help if you can leave a review and a rating on iTunes and share this episode on social media. The Life and Times of Video Games is on Twitter and now also Instagram at Life and Times VG. If you can afford to make a monthly donation to help me get the show to a point of long-term sustainability, head to lifeandtimes.games/patreon. As thanks, you can get things like ad-free episodes, and I will be playing ads very soon, and also bonus content, and even the chance to pick a topic and boss me around on a future episode. And you can find links to everything mentioned here through the website, lifeandtimes.games. Coming up next time, I'll be sharing the story of a publicity stunt that was fun for everyone, except the poor guy who came up with the idea. My name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening.